my wife and I were having a meal with um, some parents from my daughter's school. As they were uh, talking to us, they you know realized, of course, I think I being a pastor, they said, what is it about uh, religion and Christianity particularly that drew you to it? And, um, and as we began to talk, they began to tell us that you know, they're not church-going people, that they have tried it. And in trying it, they said, I just didn't feel like I had a connection with God. And I didn't feel like it connected to my life, real life. Well, unfortunately, it would be very difficult to say that the chapters that we have been looking at over these last three weeks don't connect to life, real life. The harsh and tragic and horrible and heavy reality of life. Three weeks ago, we saw how David, Israel's most prominent king, abused his power in order to summon his loyal friend's wife into his bedroom. And then he abused his power to murder his loyal friend, to cover it up. We saw the prophet address that sin as David sat for over nine months in it without any repentance. And this week, we have a story that includes rape and fratricide, killing of a sibling. And unfortunately, this is the horrible reality of life. Over the years, I've had a number of people not speaking even specifically in this community or while I was in this community, but I've had a number of people open up to me about the fact that they were raped, men and women. That's a hard thing to talk about. So if a number of people have opened up to me about it, then that means that there must be so many more. That's the horrible and tragic reality of the world in which we live. And it's a reality that this text addresses. And so we are all coming to this place before this word burdened because of experiences we have had, because of experiences our friends have had, because of experiences that our family and relatives and neighbors have had. And I just want to say, if you are one of those people who is a victim of rape, I am so sorry. No one deserves that. No one can do anything to deserve that. And I want you to know that my heart breaks, but more than that, I want you to know that God's heart breaks over what has happened. And I think that one of the reasons why this story is here and this text is here in the Bible for us is to show us the breaking and broken heart of God. So as we look at it, let's pray to him. 
triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are love. And you are a great shepherd. As we spend this time over your word, which you have given us, it causes us to deal with the heavy realities of life. Knowing that you are not indifferent to them, would you draw near because you're not indifferent to us either? Tend your sheep tenderly, like a shepherd. And help me to speak your words, to communicate your heart. We pray this in your triune name. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, God sends Nathan, the prophet, with a message to David where he says, Out of your household, I am going to bring calamity on you. And here we start to see that calamity unfold. Her name is Tamar, and the world was her oyster. She had everything before her. She was beautiful, verse 1 tells us. She was intelligent. She was courageous. She was royalty. Her father was David, the king of Israel. Her maternal grandfather was Talmai, the king of Geshur. She had a half-brother. His name was Amnon. And in verse 1, we learn that Amnon loved Tamar. In fact, he was lovesick over Tamar. Verse 2 says, Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. See, Amnon's desire was not socially acceptable, nor was it morally acceptable. Leviticus 18, there were rules against incest. So what Amnon has here is what the Bible deems a disordered desire. Do you believe that desires can be disordered? We live in a society where many people are saying today that it seems that they don't believe that desires can be disordered. We've gone to a place where we think that if you love someone, you should be able to express that love. Someone, anyone, you should be able to express that love in a sexual relationship. And we say that regardless of the covenant of marriage. We say that regardless of the person's biological sex. That is the way that we view things today or tend to in our society. It seems that it's repressive and you're not true to yourself if, for instance, you fall out of love with your spouse and in love with another person if you don't act on that. And yet, we are still willing to say that there are some boundaries, right? Today, most people aren't willing to say that they believe that someone loving and having a sexual relationship with their son or daughter is appropriate, no matter what age. We do still tend to say that, in general, things like incest and bestiality 
and pedophilia are wrong. But here's my question, why? Because if we don't believe there are disordered desires, if we don't believe there's boundary, then what's to say where that line is? See, I would suggest to you that it becomes really difficult. But the Bible, it has another way of looking at the world. The way that the Bible looks at the world is like this. You see, ever since the fall, we all have been infested with disordered desires. We all. Not one of us doesn't suffer from them. And so in the Bible, one of those disordered desires is to be sexually desirous of someone other than your spouse. Another of those disordered desires is to be sexually desirous of someone who is of the same biological sex. And we all have these disordered desires in various forms and various degrees. And maturity in the Bible is to recognize those desires as disorder, to address those disordered desires, and to refuse to indulge them. Amnon has a disordered desire, and he is an immature man. And that doesn't bode well for Israel, since he is the heir apparent, David's eldest son. Verse 4 reiterates that he is the king's son, who in verses 4 through 6 hatches a plan with his cousin, Jonadab. The plan goes like this. Uh, feign ill, Adnan. If you feign ill, then, then you can get your father to bring Tamar to you and you can see her. And so, Adnan does. He feigns ill. He tells his father, he says, hey, dad, I, I want Tamar to, come, uh, Tamar to come. Send her to me so that she can make me some comfort food. Not really comfort food, probably more like a Valentine's from Renault. Heart-shaped pastries in the Hebrew. And David, unwittingly, goes and sends for Tamar. And the scene is eerily familiar. Because we've seen David, just two chapters earlier, send for another woman and put her in harm's way. And here again, David unwittingly puts his daughter in harm's way. He sins for Tamar. You know, leadership matters. David's leadership matters. As the king goes, so goes the people. As the father goes, so goes the children. Most of the time, through most of the world, throughout most of the time, cultures have tended to view fathers and men as those who are the primarily protectors of the boundaries and the structures of society. They viewed women as nurturing the life of society, but fathers and husbands and men as those who protect the borders and boundaries and also the structures of society. The role of the father was to protect his household. The role of the king was to protect the citizenship. 
And here, David is passive in his role. And so he sends his daughter unwittingly into harm's way. Verse 8 picks up the scene and slows down the action. As if to follow Abnon's lustful eyes. And she took dough and she kneaded it. And she made cakes in his sight and she baked cakes. When Tamar went to serve Abnon the cakes, he would not eat it. He sent everyone out. He goes into a rash fit and then he says, come with me to my bedroom, serve me there. And it's there in his bedroom when he gets her alone that his real intentions are made known. Verse 11, he grabbed her. He grabbed her. And he said, come to bed with me. Tamar, for her point, verse 12, she marshals all the powers of resistance at her disposal. She appeals to Abnon's sense of family. Don't, my brother. She appeals to his sense of propriety. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. She appeals to his sense of morality. Don't do this wicked thing. She appeals even to his empathy. What about me? What will become of me? She appeals to his pride and self-interest. What about you? You will be like one of the, the wicked fools in Israel. And then, as a last resort, she appeals to the king. Tell the king he, he'll marry us. But none of those appeals work. They fall on deaf ears because Amnon already is mastered by his own disordered desires. Verse 14, but he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. In short, he raped her. The first couple that the Bible talks about is Adam and Eve. They have two sons. One is named Cain, the other is named Abel. Cain ends up murdering his brothers, the first fratricide we have and the first murder that we have in the Bible. But there's this moment in, in the story where Cain becomes very jealous of Abel. And he is, he's disappointed because his offering has not been accepted and Abel's has. And God comes to Cain and he says this, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, you will, not, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, listen to this, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Genesis chapter 4 unleashes and gives us a concept of sin, which in my mind and to my mind is understudied and, under, and, and misunderstood. Because what this says is that sin is not simply a misdeed or an act. It's a power, a powerful force that's been unleashed on the world through Adam's sin. It crouches at the door and it's seeking to master us and we must overcome it. It is a cosmic power. It is a force. It's like a virus, a disease that spreads throughout the world. And here, Adnan does not master it. It masters him. 
You know, leadership matters. And no matter who you are, no matter what influence you have, the person that you are called to lead first and foremost, and the person that I am called to lead first and foremost, is ourselves. Adnan failed to rule over the disordered desire. We are called to lead, to rule over the disordered desires in our world, in our hearts, that crouch at the door. Because we can only lead others insofar as we lead ourselves, and we will only lead others in the ways that in which we lead ourselves. You know, there's an irony here in Tamar's response, and not a little irony. She says, such a thing is not done in Israel, except two chapters ago when it was done in the palace. She says, you would be like one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Go speak to the king. Except that he is one of the outrageous fools in Israel who has done this thing. It's as if Tamar is saying, even if she doesn't realize it, leadership matters. David's leadership matters. As the king goes, so goes the people. Like father, like son. You see, he has unleashed a force of sin into his family that would tear it apart for centuries. 1999 was an important year for me because it was the year that I graduated from high school. It was also the year that the movie Magnolia came out. Magnolia, a movie that's set in the San Fernando Valley, named after a long stretch of road there, is a movie about how sins of fathers affect children. It, it shows the story of unfaithful fathers and the damage that they can do to their children and how that damage plays itself out later in life when abused, abandoned, and addicted uh, children become angry and addicted and depressed adults. It's a fascinating film, but one of the things that most fascinates me about the film, and it's dark and it's hard to watch, but one of the things that's most fascinating about it is that it seems to be saying that actually to understand this and the power and the force of evil that gets worked out in family systems, it seems to say that, that the only way that we can really make sense of this is through the Bible. Because it keeps making these biblical illusions. And one of, the, one of those kids as an adult, he is, he's over a toilet throwing up, and as he is over a toilet throwing up, he keeps saying, repeating to himself, the sins of the father are laid upon the children. The sins of the father are laid upon the children. The sins of the father are laid upon the children. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. I am the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of fathers on children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Lamentations chapter 5, verse 7, our fathers sinned and we have bore their iniquities. David has sinned. 
and his children are bearing his iniquity like a virus that is flying through his household. See, sin is a power unleashed on this world and it traffics in family systems. Generational, it traffics across generations in family systems. It traffics in national family systems across clan and people and tribe. Earlier this week, I, um, I was getting my daughter ready to go off to school and I'm getting her ready and we're running late and she's having a little trouble with her earring. I just lost it. Sin overcame me. I spoke harshly to her. The things that were in my hand, I threw down. And I felt so ashamed. Because whatever disobedience she did, it did not deserve that. And the rest of the day, I just kept thinking about the fact that, you know, those kind of wounds, they stick with a person. Even when there's forgiveness and even when there's reconciliation, which there was, I went to her later that day and and she forgave me and we reconciled. But the wounds still stick and the wounds still last. What happened to Tamar, you just you can't undo it. She's covered in shame. Amnon, her brother, is also covered in shame. Verse 15 says that he went from love to hate. He hated his sister, and he hated her with a hatred that was greater than the quote-unquote love with which he loved her. Why? He sends her out. Why? Because shames people shame people. It's one of the ways that we use to cover ourselves and to hide. And Amnon, you see, for him, Tamar now represents everything that he hates about himself. And we want to say... That's not who we are. We often say that in society, right? That's not who we are as a nation. That's not who we are as a people. But what if that's exactly who we are? It's who Amnon is. And he can't get away from it. And so he tries to send her away so he can conceal the matter. But Tamar, she refuses to conceal the matter, verse 19. She puts ashes on her head. She changes out. She refuses to wear her virgin gown so that everyone knows. The king knows. He finds out, verse 21, and it says that he is angry. Who is David angry about? Who's he angry at? Maybe Amnon. My guess is that he's angry with himself. Because he does nothing. Even though he's angry, he does nothing. 
And verse 21 points out that he is the king. That is, he is the only one in society who is authorized to bring about God's justice. And he doesn't do it. I'm sure it was difficult. It's his eldest son. It's the heir apparent to the throne. But he doesn't do it. Leadership matters. David's leadership matters. When those who have authority don't seek justice, even when it's hard, things go from bad to worse. Verse 20 tells us that Tamar goes to live in her brother Absalom's house. At first, Absalom seems indifferent, verse 22. What has happened? He says, be at peace. But we know that something else is going on. See, Absalom, there is a storm raging within him. No, he he buried his anger and he just let it build like a fire in his heart. And if his father won't bring about justice righteously, then Absalom is going to bring it about unrighteously. He waits for two years. There's a sheep sharing event at his farm. He comes to David. He says, David, let's let's take the whole family up there. David says, no, we're not going to all go as a family. That doesn't make sense. He says, well, then bring, let me take Abnon. Let's take Abnon up there. And David, at first, he's hesitant, which verse 26, which makes sense because Abnon and Absalom have not spoken for two years. And I'm sure David knows why. And yet David grants the request and he lets him go. And then, and then Absalom waits for the perfect time. They're sitting around the fire and he, he waits and he relaxes Abnon like David relaxed Uriah with a meal and wine. And then he says, he gives his servants the word like David gave his servant the word. Uriah. And they murder Abnon. Like father, like son. As the king goes, so goes the people. Leadership matters. And because David is passive and he fails to execute justice, the evil simply continues. Now let's be clear. Let's be clear, because I think there's a lot of a lack of clarity about this in our society and world. David executing justice would not have undone what happened to Tamar. You can't undo that. Our executing and pursuing justice today does not bring sons and daughters back from the dead. We cannot do that. That's not what we're doing. What we're talking about is proximate justice. What we're talking about is is setting up stability in society and in the world so that we can actually move forward in some kind of way. And proximate justice is not inconsequential. David refusing and failing to act here has been passive instead of proactive. It devastates the family. David had a chance to break the chain of violence, and he didn't, and so the chain of violence continues to move on. Leadership matters. 
And so the question for us, for you and me today, I think, is where has God given you agency and influence? Where are you being passive when God has called you to action? The result of this is that David loses two sons. Verse 37, Absalom is forced to flee, and it says that David mourned for his son every day. Which son did he mourn for? The text doesn't tell us. I'm not sure David knew. You know, sin confuses our emotions in this gray and mucky world. And the story ends, and it's a horrible, tragic story. Amnon's dead. Absalom's gone. And what of Tamar? Verse 29 says, So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. You can't undo what happened to Tamar. No, she would have a dark, invisible passenger that sat with her and went with her everywhere she went in life from that point forward. And some of you know that passenger. It's called shame. And she would carry that shame the rest of her days. In verse 13, Tamar asked, where could I carry my shame? Where could she carry her shame? But here's what I want you to know today. God is not indifferent towards our shame. In fact, the story of the Bible is a story of God answering Tamar's question, where can I go in my shame? The first thing that Adam and Eve do when they have sinned miserably and unleashed this dark force on the world is they cover themselves in the place where we carry our shame. And God says that won't do, and he covers them. Through the rest of the Old Testament, we see God over and over and over again coming to those who feel shame, either because they have sinned or because they have been sinned against. We see him coming to the desolate, to the marginalized, to those who are not insiders but outsiders. It's to Abraham and Sarah. It's to Hagar and Ishmael. It's to Leah and Hannah. It's to Mephibosheth and Naomi. Over and over and over again, God meets those who are acquainted and accustomed to shame, who are the outcast of society, who are not accepted, who, who feel like they are wrong because people treat them as such or because society doesn't accept them as such or because they have been in contact with sin, sin that they have done, or sin that has been done to them. And God continues to meet these people, and in Isaiah 54, he gives this promise. He says, Sing, O barren one, who did not bear, a major source of shame in the Old Testament. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. For you will forget the shame of your youth. And then God comes and he takes on flesh. And who does he go to? Tax collectors and prostitutes. 
He goes to lepers and he touches them. Those who are considered untouchable in society. He goes to those who are most ashamed. And then the author of Hebrew tells us that he goes outside of the camp, outside of the city walls. You know, in the Old Testament, one of the things that happened when you were impure is that you had to go outside of the camp, outside of the city. That's where you bore your shame. Jesus goes outside of the city and there at the cross, he carries our shame. He does away with our shame because there he deals with sin that causes shame. Sins that we have done and sins that have been done to us. There he disassociates us from the sin and associates us with his love. Where was he going when he went outside the city? Who was he going to meet? Tamar. That's who he was going to meet. And me. And you. He meets us there. And there he holds us. There he touches us with a healing touch. There he says words to us that undo all the awful words that have caused so much shame. There he sings over us and he rejoices over us and he tells us, you are worthy. See, the end of that text in Isaiah says, your maker is your husband and your redeemer is your God. In other words, it's saying God comes to us and he says, I want you. And I want you so much I would pay for you. My own blood for you. And so you are worthy and you are mine. This is a God who comes to cover us in our shame. And that's the good news. See, earlier I said that there is a verdict that could not undo what had been done. But that's not wholly true. Because when Jesus went outside the gate, when he was a man who was despised and rejected, from whom others hid their faces because they were so ashamed of him. When he was on the shame of the cross, which Romans would not even name, when he was there hanging and he had no one to cover his shame and nothing to cover his shame, do not let the art deceive you. There was no loincloth. There in his naked shame, he carried your shame and he carried my shame. And three days later, God rendered the verdict on him. I love you. You are accepted and acceptable in my sight. And so are all those whom he chooses to love and to be with. And that's you and that's me, brother and sister. That's you and that's me. God, I ask that you would come and minister to us in our shame and break the power of sin over our lives with your love. Help us to believe it, to feel it, to know it. Invite us in, Lord, even now as we come to your table. Amen.